Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Here's a snippet of what's to come. So Islamic banks are, are highly inflexible, right? It's like it, to change the direction. It's like, so we, we used to do some corporate presentations in terms of flexibility and agility. So on the one hand, you used to show maybe um, a jet ski to see, you know, how quick and you can, and, and, and to show the opposite, we should show one of these huge oil tankers. So Islamic banking yeah. is like is like a, a huge convoy of oil tankers, right? It's before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsen and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on Mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. At IFG, we really value someone trying to run a halal business without dealing in riba. And we love it when Muslims bring something innovative to the table. And that's why we support Shropshire Hills-based EuroQuality Lamb, the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir in Europe. And, and I've actually been there and they're doing something genuinely impressive and it has infused within it the Muslim ethos. What's special about Euro quality is that out of the 15,000 lambs they process every week, they only select a handful of the best breeds of grass-fed lamb for their home delivery service. The meat is cut how you want it, English cuts, desi cuts, barbecue style. You just don't find this stuff at your local butchers. So order online at eurocualitylambs.co.uk forward slash shop and reference Islamic Finance Guru to get yourself a free masala marinade worth £4.50 and a YouTube recipe hijri calendar worth £5. Terms and conditions apply. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamic Finance Guru's podcast, Millionaire Muslim. Um, today I've got uh, a very interesting guest with us uh, who's one of the um, really quite experienced and uh, I'd say veterans uh, of the industry, uh, of the Islamic finance industry, Saftar Alam, um, who has uh, worked previously at Credit Agricole, UBS uh, and JP Morgan in the Islamic finance um, departments and in the Islamic finance uh, divisions and actually headed up and founded uh, some of these div divisions as well. And, and we'll get into all of this, inshallah. Um, but Saftar, I wanted to first kind of, um, you know, go back to where it all started and um, you know, ask you um, what led you into this whole field in the first place? What got you into Islamic finance? Walaikum um, salam brother and, and, and thank you for the introduction. So um, Islamic finance, it was not an, uh, an immediate journey for me. Um, I initially worked in banking. And um, so first of all, I, I obtained my chartered accountancy qualification after, after university and I went into I went into banking from there. So I went into conventional banking. I see. Okay. And um, well, at that time, Islamic banking wasn't really a thing in, in, the, in the UK. So this is, um, so <laughs> trying to work out a whole time. So this was mid-90s, mid, um, mid to late 90s. So I went into, into investment banking, which is quite a common route for, for chartered accountants qualifications. And I went, in, I went to work yeah. on the a derivative side because then, you know, uh, to be honest, I was um, in my mid twenties. I was quite materialistic, and I wanted, I wanted to work in an area where, uh, which earned 
which earned me quite a lot of money at the time. So working in, in the front office and middle office was, uh, was, a, was, was quite a normal route for chartered accountants back then. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so I worked with, it was mainly with um, a derivatives and uh, a trading markets in the front office. And I had various roles for about um, six or seven years. And then at that time, um, I mean, to be frank, I was getting a bit bored with with investment banking because it was, it. I mean, the, the pay was good, of course, but um, I didn't really feel the challenge. It was just a case of finding different ways to make more money, and I didn't find that challenging. So, I, I was actually thinking of leaving investment banking at that time, and it was it was just then I I came across something which is quite new in the UK, which was Islamic banking, and then that that really reignited. A passion for me in, in banking and Islamic banking um, but to go from having that passion to actually getting my first job in Islamic banking was a real mission it, it took me two to three years of of searching for work um, because initially I wanted uh, to have my first job in the UK if possible I, I wasn't really in a position to think about moving abroad to the Middle East where, yeah. where there were more opportunities I wanted and- to stay in London so at that time um, yeah. I was at UBS and I'd been there for a few years and quite fortunately they, they, they established an Islamic banking department um, around about the time that I had my interest so uh, and I actually knew the brother he, he was quite senior at the time so I knew the brother who established it um, and you know I was in quite in quite a friendly way <laughs> asking for a job but um, favors can only go so far um, in banking. Yeah. So it, it took me two to three years of waiting and waiting for an opportunity for a, a junior to mid-level position to, to come up in that team at UBS. And it and and so was it was it like um, I mean from a career perspective, did you have to take um, like a salary cut or and did, I mean it must be in a way starting again from um, from the bottom up, it sounds like. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. So, um, I mean, I'd, I had reached a certain level of experience and, and expertise in, in, in the areas of banking where I had worked. But so to come into the Islamic banking team, it was um, more of a, a much more junior position in there. Um, so it yeah. was really a step back in terms of the, the caliber of the experience I was having. But that was fine for me. For me, I, I really just wanted anything in Islamic banking. Um, and so the first role I had was actually, um, it was working on confirmations of um, interbank liquidity deals, which, which uh, they're still the same now. So at the time, they were commodity Morabaha deals. So I was on the phone doing some, uh, well, agreeing prices and deals with Islamic banks for liquidity, and then going through the execution process for them. And back then, I mean, it's not like it was the ancient days, but back then, the execution was by fax. We, it wasn't wow, by email, okay. so we, we'd be, I'd be executing deals. So in London, so the clients were two or three or four hours ahead uh, in the Middle East. So we, uh, we'd execute deals early morning UK time, and literally we'd, I'd have to, we'd have to send a fax to the, the client banks in the Middle East. And, and by the time it's nine o'clock here, for example, in the morning, it's it's around about lunchtime in the Middle East. So um, <laughs> I was told at the time once it gets to, once it gets to lunchtime, not to expect. Uh, a quick response from <laughs> from the Middle yeah. East clients. Yeah. So we, we'd have, we would have deals that we would do in the morning, uh, and the execution would be completed three or four hours later. Wow. And so you um, so you're working in London, um, and you know you 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 previously working in derivatives, and of course there's there'll be some um, significant crossover of that experience into the 
uh, Islamic finance role that you are now in. Um, what was it about Islamic finance in particular that kind of caught your attention or your imagination? Because you, you said that it reignited your interest in, in banking and you, know, you were really interested in Islamic finance. What was it about it that, you know, you, that really caught your attention? I think there were two aspects of it that, that, that really meant something to me. So one was just the fact that there's a way to do, you know, to work, a way to work in the financial markets that, that, that was in line with my religious beliefs. Because it was something that I just hadn't heard of before. I mean, now Islamic banking is it's, you know, it's, it's here. It's, it's, it's part of the banking landscape. So the, the only question is, um, you know, the size and the growth. But back then, it, it really was new. Yeah, and in the UK, yeah. it, it really was new. So it was, really, it was like a new discovery for me. And, and I think the, the, the second driving factor was my own personal position. Because, um, I mean, I... Mean, I I would say like, like, like quite a typical Muslim in the UK, I've always been observant about my religion, but I, I never really thought that much about it when, up, up to my time in the mid-20s. And so I think it coincided at, at a time where I was more aware of myself and, and my position and, and my faith. Mm. Um, and to be honest, when the, what I was looking at before I found out about Islamic banking, when I decided, I, I really had decided to leave banking because so I was thinking what to do. And I was thinking of going back into study and, and, and maybe to study something to do with religion or, or theology. So I think in my mid-twenties, I, I was also on some kind of journey where I was getting a bit more attuned and, and, and aware of myself with regards to my faith. So when, when I did see a crossover between that and, and the banking sector where I worked, then it, it was like two or three things coming together for me. And then I really thought that, yeah, th this is really what I want to do. I've been in banking for half a dozen years. Um, it's a way for me to, you know, to, to be more, more aligned with my faith and it's my experience as well so but when that happened it was really um, I, I was determined to try and find something in Islamic banking and as I said it took two or three years of, of really hard work to to wait for an opportunity Wow and so you when you um, went into Islamic finance um, how do you think it you know you would compare between what it was when you went in and um, you know where you left it uh, a number of years later. Okay, so I think um, when the, so my last job at J.P. Morgan, where I that so um, there was a global head of Islamic banking. So I left that I think in two thousand and eleven. So in the intervening years, which, which was a good chunk, so uh, it I think it it went through a transformative phase that was quite incredible at the, at that time. So if we're talking, um, so from about 2000 onwards, um, so at the, after a few years, I did move to the Middle East so to work with the Credit Agricole first. And then that was a phase, I would say, in the middle 2000s where there was an incredible amount of growth. Growth in, so in terms of assets, growth in terms of the number of Islamic banks that were being set up. They, they were literally being set up um, every two or three months. And, and these were big, huge banks. And also... Um, to coincide with that and the growth of the market, that there was a phenomenal increase in, in the products available and the products and the complexity of the products. And I, and I spoke to a few people who were my contemporaries at the time, and we all agree that that period, the, the rate of innovation, I mean, not, not bad innovation that, that sends you to hellfire, but financial innovation, it, it was really phenomenal. So the products that we had at the time when I left Islamic banking um, 
were really quite impressive and they were hugely different compared to the time that I came in. And I think now, so from 2011 to now, talking eight years, I think there's been no meaningful development in, in terms of the product innovation and creation. So everything that's happening now is pretty much just a slight a derivation of, 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 of all the innovation that had gone on at that time. And so what what do you think led to the, like, what, so what led to the innovation and what has led to the kind of, um, you know, the stagnation? Do you think is that's just a natural kind of cycle of an industry or is there some other kind of driving factor? And then how, how do you bring further innovation back? I think it's, I think it's natural if you, if the industry decides a certain path. So, if, if you look at the, the cause of the innovation, I think part of it, without a doubt, was the fact that in the mid-2000s, um, a quite a large number of conventional banks were more active in the market. So back in 2000, so around about 2000, when I started looking, the only institution that had it, was doing anything meaningful in the UK at that time was um, HSBC. So they had quite a big team in London. And so they were the first guys I went to see. I said, I want to work in Islamic banking. I'm at UBS. Can I have a job? And, and what they said to me was, um, Safta, you come, you've come at a very unfortunate time because we're, we're planning to move the whole team to Dubai. So, right. yeah, so, so the timing was awkward for me because I wanted to stay in London. But at that time, so they were really the only meaningful, uh, the only conventional bank that was working meaningfully in Islamic banking. But fast forward three or four or five years later, uh, in 2005, when I moved to the Middle East, you had half a dozen large conventional banks that were active in Islamic banking. So uh, UBS, of course, uh, Citibank, HSBC, Credit Agricole, and the French banks, so um, BNP Paribas, um, yeah. Societe Generale, which are big, yeah. huge banks, and Standard Chartered, of course, have a, have a fantastic franchise there. So I think with the the more commitment from conventional banks, it meant that the level of expertise that was injected into the sector, it was quite phenomenal in terms of the starting point and where they were. So tying in with the fact that there were there were new banks, come new Islamic banks, retail banks, investment banks coming out all the time. And there was a big focus in the region, in the Middle East and in, and in Malaysia. Um, and then the conventional banks came along with a with a, with a phenomenal supply line of of creativity and and products and also balance sheet. I mean, th- this can't be underestimated. When when tr- when big transactions were done in the market, you know, fundraising in the hundreds of millions, it was really the conventional banks that really put their balance sheets towards all these transactions at that time. So I think the conventional yeah. banks were a huge driver for um, the growth in innovation at that time. That's that's really that, that's really interesting. We had, we had Haris Irfan on as well, and he said something very similar. And um, and he, I think he, he, his analysis was that the innovation departed in many ways because um, the big conventional banks departed uh, due to you know the the financial crisis or due to pressures on on their balance sheets so they kind of uh, drew back from the Islamic finance divisions and as a result of that we've you know we've been left with just pure Islamic banks. Uh, in the in the market, and they're just not as uh, creative. Do, do you think that's fair? I think it's certainly that's part of the reason. So, it, if you look at now the active, the conventional banks are active in Islamic banking. It's 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 a fraction of, of what it used to be. 
Um, and so th- there are various commercial reasons and strategic reasons for that. So that, that certainly one of the impacts of that is that perhaps there is less innovation in the market. And, and, but I would say to a large amount, the, the withdrawal of those balance sheets has been compensated by the, by the growth of Islamic banks. You know, some, some of the large Islamic banks now, in terms of balance sheets, are, are more than capable of replacing whatever, been, whatever has been withdrawn by the conventional banks. In terms of expertise, um, there is a slight difference um, between the expertise, but I think with the, in, the, in the wider connection of conventional banks, one of the things that I've often heard is that it, it's almost critical in a way that conventional banks drove, drove the direction of Islamic banking in a certain way. Um, but in my experience, that, 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 that has never been the case. So, as I mentioned, I've always worked with conventional banks, but all my clients have been Islamic banks. And, and when we worked on transactions, so, for example, we had Sharia advisors. We had to, we had to have a Sharia board, just like an Islamic bank. And we had the same kinds of scholars. And I would say, in fact, because in general, conventional banks had a larger budget. We, 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 we had the cream of the crop in terms of the scholars available globally. So our approach really was... To Islamic banks, um, please explain to us what your requirements are and what your constraints are in terms of Sharia, and we will find a solution for you. So, I think that yeah. was the approach, rather than, well, how can we stretch the boundaries? How can we do things that perhaps are a bit questionable? I don't think that was the intention. It was really, um, it was also the demand for products from the Islamic market. Uh, you know, the markets were growing very fast, and I think innovation was one of the ways that certain institutions could try to keep ahead of the market. And that innovation, it, it came from the conventional banks. And that's purely because of the, um, the pricing and the risk management capability of conventional banks. I mean, so even now, if you look at Islamic banks who do some very interesting things, so for example, I think Abu Dhabi Islamic Bank have some very interesting structured note programs, uh, structured on equities and structured on gold. And they give various structured payoffs and they have capital protection. But... The reality is um, underneath that, that whole pricing capability and risk management is coming from conventional banking. It's not coming from, there's a, there are no Islamic banks that can manage that. So I think they still the support for the innovation and the, the depth of the products is still there from conventional banking, but they're not driving it as, yeah. uh, as much as they were so, a few years ago. I think, I think that makes sense. Um, and so, um, you know, just I'm just thinking for our listeners as well, it would be really helpful if you could just in a kind of uh, a minute or two summarize exactly what, you know, what do Islamic banks do? What does Islamic finance really at heart in a nutshell entail? And how, how is it? How does it sit within the economy? How does it help people? Does it help people? <laughs> I should, you know, I shouldn't assume, I shouldn't assume <coughs> that. Okay, so whenever I... Th- Whenever I think about Islamic banking now, I, I almost have to think of it in, in, in two separate ways. So one is the theoretical side. And I think the, the theoretical framework, which, which are the rules and principles from our religion, are um, incredible. In terms of, what, so one, they are very simple. They're incredibly simple because they, the, the rules were... Um, the basis of the rules were, were delivered in scriptures and texts and, and narrations from um, a long, long time ago. So the basis of, the, of, of, of everything we, we practice today in Islamic banking, the bases are really v- very, very simple. But I think the wisdom behind them 
is quite incredible, and they are they are absolutely applicable to modern financial markets. But I think, as an industry and as um, as researchers or as academics in terms of the study of the discipline of Islamic banking, I think we don't understand it very well. I think we understand it very poorly. So then that leads me on to the practice of Islamic banking. The practice of Islamic banking, um, it's not very good at all, in my view. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I explained my, my, my incredible motivation when I moved into it. And when I left Islamic banking a few years ago, that was also for the same reason. It was also because of my, my passionate desire for Islamic banking. That's why I left it, because I, I think it's failing in many, in many, many key ways in terms of um, the responsibility to deliver um, a system and, and ethics that's demanded by our religion. I, I think it's not doing yeah. a very good job at all in practice. So when we talk about Islamic banking, it's almost... I have to have two different conversations. One is the the theory and the pract- the theory behind it, which I think is phenomenal, but the practice is it's really bad. It's and and, and I think in many ways it's it's highly unethical. And and what what is what is the kind of unethical or bad stuff about it? Is it that it's just mimicking the conventional, or uh, or is there something else that you had in mind? I think so. When we say mimicking the conventional. Um, the short answer is yes, but I think the the reason it does that is quite complicated. That I don't think it was it's just a consequence of you know the market's there and 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 so if we want to do something, then maybe we have to try to maybe learn from or, or mimic what's successful in the market. I, I think the reason behind it is that in the very early days of Islamic banking, when Islamic banks were established, and and it's, and it's very true now that somewhere somehow and by some people a decision was made to follow a certain model and that decision was made to follow the conventional banking model and once you and, and that that has many many implications and one of the key implications is that it it impacts the nature of the institution you create so once you create a certain institution that's designed to run on conventional banking lines you really and this is, a, it became clear to me only years and years after of, of experiencing it, that you, you're, you are really tying your hands in terms of any movement that you have in the future. You're really cutting off your possibility of moving away from that model. Because that model is all-consuming. It, it's not something, you, you know, what shall I do today? Maybe, you know, shall I mimic these instruments or not? It, it's, once you've chosen this model, you cannot do anything other than mimic conventional banking. So what does it mean when we say mimic conventional banking? I mean, it's not always a bad thing because conventional banking and conventional finance and conventional business, they have many, many good things that we, that we must learn from. But there are certain aspects that are just not permissible for us, you know, things to do with interest and things to do with uh, speculation. But unfortunately, one of the, 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 I would say that if I had to pick one building block of conventional banking, it's interest. It's debt and interest. So it's yeah. something that is, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the most widely known prohibition in Islamic banking. So uh, yeah. once we have that, then it leads to many things. So once you, once you accept that your uh, reason for existence is a model that is predicated on debt and interest, then everything you do must circulate around that. You, you, you really have no okay, choice. So, so let's, dig, let's dig into that. What, so... Um, what is the uh, starting point that you think? I mean, this is this nicely brings us on to, I suppose, your current project, which is uh, Nia, 
the digital bank that you're working on at the moment, um, or, or it may not do, I don't, I don't know. Um, but what, what, where do you think is the right starting point uh, other than, you know, uh, you know, let's let's say I want to set up a bank. I decide um, I've got two options here. One is I kind of reimagine something, uh, or the other option is I go for either like a digital bank. There's you know lots of precedent around that. I can go for something along those lines, or I can um, set up essentially um, you know a conventional bank uh, and go for like the, the the systems and infrastructure and the the tech and the. Um, you know the IT systems that are you know lots lots of lots of them are available in, in the city because there's lots of banks who've used them. Um, so out of all of those options, um, you know if we're kind of trying to reimagine what an Islamic bank look, looks like, um, where do you start? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I mean, um, and I'm not sure there's a simple answer to it. But one thing I've I, in order to try to think that way, I've I've tried to look at what's the source of. The problem, which is the the mimicking, and I think the source is the, the the traditional and the conventional banking model is that the banks, on the one hand, they accept deposits, which creates their liabilities, and the deposits are protected. I mean, in many cases, in the UK, for example, they're protected by by law, so they can't be used for things um, that have any any real risk of capital, because then the banks would have a real risk mismatch. So the the banks deliver interest on those deposits. And in terms of raising assets, they they deliver loans. So conventional banks have to deliver loans. It's what they do, whether it's personal loans or mortgages or car loans or uh, in the corporate market. Uh, it's all about loans. And, and it's interesting. I mean, um, there was something I saw yesterday about the process of debt creation that um, I think one of the, the think tanks in economics wrote an open letter to say to universities to say, why, why are universities teaching the, uh, an economic and banking model that's not correct? Because, because banks yeah, create yeah, money, yeah. but I don't think that's well understood. So, and, and this has many implications in the, in the economic system. So if you look at what banks do, it's, it's fundamentally the precepts of it are against Sharia because with debt, you must have interest. So when you think about an Islamic bank, it's really, I can't imagine an Islamic bank operating that offers... Um, that can still offer two key things. So if you offer a deposit that's protected and you deliver a return on that, then there's no way to do it without interest. So that's the, that's the first problem an Islamic bank has. The second problem is, and, and I think it's maybe it's a consequence of the nature of the liabilities. So if you have deposits from customers that you must protect, then you're limited in how you, how you generate assets. You can't invest in like VC, yeah. so you must give quite safe uh, investments that, uh, well, debt, you must give debt that charges interest and then you must understand the credit risk. So, and so, so I think the two key things that banks do, accepting deposits and giving loans, are, are, are two things that a real Islamic bank cannot do. So then you have a real quandary. Okay. You have an Islamic bank that can't operate yeah. like a bank. But I think that's a natural conclusion. I think banks really, so in the Islamic sense, really should be uh, intermediaries of of the mobilization and the distribution of capital. Um, I mean, sometimes that's how it's presented for conventional banking, that they are financial intermediaries, but the reality is that they're not. They Okay, so um, just to kind of, um, I mean, I think this is an interesting uh, line of thought here. So, um, you know, let's roll it back to what, what's the purpose of the financial sector and banking. Um, part of it is to enable um, you know the payment of various different transactions and just you know, literally getting money from one person to another 
Um, another part of it is linking up between people who have money and people who need money. And then there's, uh, you know, there's two different, I suppose, ways that people who need money get it. Either it's debt or it's um, uh, equity. And so, uh, from what, what I what I'm hearing from you, you're saying that we should almost uh, disaggregate uh, these functions because in modern banks, it's all kind of aggregated into one thing. Um, if we disaggregated it, you know, the, just the uh, the holding of money in an account and then use, using that for the fulfillment of transactions, that is perfectly sure compliant, right? And you can even charge uh, a fee for that. Um, but it's probably not very lucrative. Then, um, you know, giving someone money to do, uh, you know, equity investments on a kind of, uh, you know, on the on a basis of mudaraba, for example, or musharaka even, um, that will be a kind of separate bucket. And then you've got fixed income and, and you can uh, do a similar kind of structure there as well. Is that kind of, you know, where you're thinking or or am I, am I missing it? I think... I think broadly, yes. So I think I think banks or these financial institutions should play the role as you mentioned. It should be used. They should be used for the mobilization of capital from those who have capital, and then the the distribution of capital. And that distribution should be a competitive process, right? It's not like so who needs money for a venture. Is that people must they they must bid for this capital. So then there must be processes to choose the most suitable. Um, recipients of capital so that has to be a market and a competitive process um, so at the moment it's quite different it's uh, who wants financing who wants a loan and when the banks give loans they don't have to allocate capital that they have right they, they literally create the capital so you don't have the same competitive elements to it so I mean the Bank of England have made clear that the only thing that limits the uh, volume of debt that's created by banks is is just their assessment of profitability there's nothing else that yeah, limits it. Yeah. So in terms of how Islamic banks should operate, I mean, perhaps first they wouldn't be called a bank anyway, but but I, but I think they should be looking to raise capital from investors or deposit holders and looking for avenues to utilize that capital. And then and then that actually brings a lot of interesting questions to the table because you, you have uh, retail people like me and you who say that we have some savings, but we don't want to... We don't want this bank to invest it into startups or into VC. I actually want to protect yeah. my capital as much as possible. Exactly, and so that's where that's where the disaggregate. So that's where the disaggregation came in because I was thinking, you know, I, I want a bit of my money to go into uh, long term, quite liquid investments. Fine, but I, I can't. I need I need a bank account where I can use my liquid money as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is something that uh, sort of a good Islamic financial system must solve. But uh, I would say over the last few years, the, um, one thing I have realized is that there is no, there is no dearth of uh, investment opportunity. But we only see certain things. So for example, we see, we see debt on the one hand, which you, know, you or I are not able to, to give commercial debt, to issue commercial debt. It's what banks do and specialized lenders do. And then on the other hand, we have, yeah. you know, how do you invest in a, in a company? So, okay, so first of all, we have the financial markets. You can invest in equities, for example. But if you don't want to do that, what can you do? How do you invest in a company? So you have uh, VC type and angel investment type, but, but, they, but they're, they're highly risky investments and require uh, significant expertise. So what is missing is an asset class where regular investors who are not experts can invest their money and have you know, a good level of security. 
And I think that asset class hasn't been created at the moment because there's no need for it. Because outside of Islamic banking, when customers want this, they just place a deposit with a bank or, or you can buy government bonds, for example. So in the markets where interest is not forbidden, there's no need to create this asset class. So, I, But yeah. I think that's the one thing that we have failed on for the last 20 years, focusing on, de- on the development of such an asset class. Interesting. And what does, I mean, I'm just trying to think what, what would be the underlying, um, you know, economic activity that could underpin that asset class. Um, and I mean, I, I, I'm thinking, you know, potentially property, but then that kind of gets us back to where we started from, uh, because it's, uh, it has all the same problems that um, we don't want. Um, in this kind of asset class, yeah, property is. I mean, it's it's a popular asset class globally for, for for many reasons, but I think it's it's a bit difficult as well because it's it requires leverage in general. You know, property prices are quite expensive to buy things with cash, and of course that yeah. ties in with the, the, everything that I've been saying about the bank's creation of of credit and creation of of of, of debt that create that leads to massive inflation over years. So now we can't buy property without having leverage and having debt. But one conclusion I've come to over the last few years is that I think we have uh, a perfectly ready-made asset class, and I think it's global, and I think it's it's linked to the uh, real enterprise, and it's linked to the SMEs that are active everywhere. So I think that's an asset class that is highly, highly underutilized, especially in Islamic banking. Interesting. and um, But then even within that, you've got varying degrees of risks, right? So... You would probably you're. I'm presuming you're thinking very kind of large blue chip um, companies who have quite stable um, and very predictable uh, cash flows and uh, financing their uh, essentially trade. Is that is that what you had in mind? I think that's probably a longer term aim because it's it, it it's more complicated once you get to that scale because one of the yeah. one of the things you're competing with at that stage is you you're competing with debt so if you go to a very large uh, international scale company and you say well I can in- inject some capital for you from investors and you know we want to be in your processes and earn some solid returns that but yeah. they'll say well why should I do this when I can just get loans from banks because these these institutions normally yeah, have high yeah. high credit lines so they say, if I can pay three percent yeah. for three or four percent for my investment for for a debt from bank, why should I pay four or five percent to investors who want a safe investment? So, I think, but that argument, um, well, that that situation it can work once you have slightly smaller SMEs because one of the issues that smaller SMEs have is that sometimes they're not always suitable to to receive bank lending, and that sometimes that's to, that's to do with maybe um, how long they've been around or, or the stability of the income or quite often ha- if they have enough assets that can be held as collateral and if they don't the, then they won't that, qualify for yeah. that and I think in general banks the normal, normal banks are not very well geared up to understand SME risk what, what, what they're geared up to is that they can give debt to SME if, if it's collateralized if it's not collateralized then yeah. your conversation with the bank is finished yeah yeah that's really interesting. I mean, and uh, and and from you know from an Islamic finance guru's perspective, we you know regularly have chats with people who are coming into the market, and there's actually Alhamdulillah, it's quite it seems to be quite an exciting time for this sector. There's a whole bunch of these SME financing providers and trade financing providers that are coming into the market, 
um, over the next kind of six months to a year. So let's see, inshallah, where they get to. I mean, I think that the big challenge for them will be to get the, you know, the level of liquidity they need to actually get this off the ground. Um, and then, um, you know, I think they're probably all going to start with a com commodity murabaha type approach um, because it's just, you know, the, so prevalent in the market. But I think that the long term, the challenge will then have to be that how do they switch away from that? Um, but yeah, yeah, interested to hear your thoughts on that as well from what you've been yeah, seeing. I think um, so. There's two points to that. One is uh, the link with trade finance. So when I was at JP Morgan, so JP Morgan is one of has one of the, uh, maybe the largest trade finance book in the world. So I got heavily involved in trade finance there. So it's Islamic trade finance, and I realized a few things. And so one of them was that the the uh, impairment rate, the bad debt rate in Islamic in in trade finance, is lower than any other kind of finance. And the reason is because it's often um, the it's uh, the cash flows are 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 derived from the nature of the business and transactions themselves. So in many ways, they are self-liquidating debt. So if you're funding exports, for example, then the repayment is from um, the cash received from the importer. You know, it's, so in that sense, they are self-liquidating investments. And then, so when we talk about the broader supply chain, so trade finance, what it does, it's, you're not really, you're not giving debt to companies and say, pay me X amount of interest. You're saying, we want to help you um, speed, um, how can I say, uh, stream your processes um, to increase your cash flows, which arise from your existing business and transactions. So the nature of funding is quite different in trade finance and supply, supply chain finance. And that means many things. It means then you're involved in transactions. You're involved in the profit generation of the business. And they're self-liquidating. The default rate is much lower. So I think that's a model that really can be applied to, to SMEs. And, and in the UK, for example, um, even in the conventional space, this is something that's really taken off in the last two or three or four years. There are, there are uh, some volume of specialists. Uh, I mean, here they're called al um, alternative finance providers that do, ve that, that do right. very interesting modes of finance that, that are not Sharia compliant, but they're not debt at interest. So one of the things that I want to do is, is to work with some finance providers to provide Sharia-compliant versions of these. And, and, and I, think, I think that's a very interesting way forward for the market. Absolutely. So you're thinking things like invoice financing, asset financing, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. and there's revenue-based financing, there's uh, merchant credit advances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. so yeah. the benefit of these kinds of things is that they're, they're not just giving loans and asking for interest back. They're actually, you can have a repayment schedule that's based on the, the profitability or the, or the revenue generation of the SME. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I mean, this is, I just hope that someone cracks it in the next few years. I think there's there's definitely, alhamdulillah, it looks like there's a lot more interest in this area now. Yeah. Uh, and people are trying to like solve it. Um, and I agree, I think that we, I think the, the exciting thing I find about this next few years is that for the first time, the younger generation of people coming into site finance, they're starting from you know the ground up, so they're actually looking at what is needed, as opposed to you know going from the top down, as in what's what's where's the liquidity, and we'll kind of just serve that. Um, they're trying to solve actual real problems of um, the mass Muslim audience, and you know my my view is that if Islamic finance is going to succeed then that's where it's going to have to happen because if you're not solving a real problem and it's, if it's just a tick box exercise then you, you're going to hit a ceiling um, you know it's not going to get mass um, traction yeah I agree with you and, and I think um, 
so Islamic banks are, are highly inflexible, right? It's like to change the direction. It's like so we, we used to do some corporate presentations in terms of flexibility and agility. So on the one hand, you used to show maybe um, a jet ski to see you know how quick and you can and and, and to show the opposite, we should show one of these huge oil tankers. To that. So Islamic banking yeah. is like is like a, a huge convoy of oil tankers, right? It's, it, it it can't change the institutions can't change their direction but what can help them to change as you mentioned are the, are new ways of thinking so new the new generation of bankers who are, who are not who are not encumbered by by the history of islamic banking that we must operate on debt there's new ways of of thinking and working and not, and, and of course non-muslims are way ahead of us non-muslims are way ahead of islamic banking in terms of finding alternative ways to work without interest so i think really we have to tap into what they're doing and prove it at some level prove it on the ground at some level and then take this to Islamic banks and say, look, this is proven. Uh, we've done it here. It's working. Now, really, why don't you absorb it into your model? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, so I'm just aware of the time. So I wanted to, um, and I'm quite interested in hearing about Nia and how, um, you know, how that's getting on and what your plans are with that. Um, and you know how how you plan to bring it to market. What what should Muslims be looking forward to on that front? Uh, okay, so Nia Nia Bank. So it's a project uh, me and co-founders are working on. To uh, so it's an Islamic a digital bank based in the UK. So um, and we're looking to launch this month, inshallah, in November. So we we have a waiting list of of of, uh, of customers. We're hoping to launch uh, an alpha launch. So open so clients can open uh, customers can open accounts. They have debit cards and they can make payments and process transactions and, and have an app. Um, so that, that's what we're looking to launch this month, inshallah. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to do Islamic banking in a good way, in, in, in a better way. So trying to avoid all of the things that we've spoken about, which is the, the leverage and the debt and the interest. Um, so that has, that has a couple of consequences. So one of the first things, and this is important to, to the whole team at NIA, is that we really want to be focused on community. We want to be focused on Muslims. I think for too long, Muslims in the UK are seen as commodities. And we, um, so we have some Islamic banks in the UK, right? But I think the average person will be, will be hard put to name, to name any of them. I mean, there was a time when, when it was Islamic Bank of Britain, at least people knew what it was. So I mean, now it's Arayan, of course, which is the largest Islamic bank, I think, in the UK. But the average person would yeah. be quite hard put to name one or two Islamic banks. So we have five or six. So the Islamic banks in general in the UK have failed to connect with Muslims. So one of the things we want to do is really be driven from the community upwards. So that means we want to work with people. We want to have events in the community. So not just events to market what we're doing in our product, but to teach people about um, financial literacy, Islamic banking. Um, and also we want to work with with charities in the community and, and, and the broader ed educational thing. So that's, and, that, and that really is our main driving force. We're going to be heavily based on the community to try to bring Muslims together. So, um, and after that, so what will we do? So, what, so we're driven as much by the things we don't want to do as, as we are by what we want to do. So we don't want to be involved with debt and interest. We don't want to be playing the, con the contractual games that Islamic banking does in terms of hiding debt and interest. So we're not going to be accepting term deposits and paying interest, and we're not going to be giving loans because you can't do that without, without charging interest. So our model will be largely based on, on two things. So one is a marketplace model. So we want to take good products from the market. So whether it's um, spe specific investment products, so we're working with partners to partners who are already delivering good products to the market. 
So we want to bring them to our marketplace and give our customers options. Um, so we, we have certain investment products and we have certain ethical investment products, which, which tend to be abroad. So there's a couple of uh, f- uh, fund managers abroad that we're speaking to who have uh, what I think of fantastic ethical uh, investment products. So and we have certain, so th- there'll be normal cash management things. So maybe a credit card, if we can find a way to deliver a credit card that I think is ethical, that is not just hiding interest. That might be something that we look yeah. at. Um, we're also going to look at uh, insurance, for example. So Takaful is something that we really don't have in the UK. I mean, there was one provider years ago who, who had to stop. But So we want to work with, we're speaking with some uh, large insurers to, to develop um, some Takaful models for car insurance and home, sur- home insurance. Um, so we want to deliver things that are useful for, for Muslims and what people need every day. And we want to get away from the interest-based model. So we're not going to look like a normal bank. We want to remain quite lean and quite flexible and, and offer what we think are really good products. Fantastic. And so and, and so, how can people find you? Is it on, on the website, on the app? How, how do the people find you? Okay, so yeah, we have, um, okay, so we have a website, which is at getnia.com. We're on um, social media. So on Twitter, we're at getnia. So just eight letters, G-E-T-N-I-Y-A-H. So there we have um, an opportunity to, to sign up and be part of our testing. We also um, have a blog that's accessible from there. We have some informa- We have some good articles on there. And also we're, we're, uh, we're receiving submissions from, from normal Muslims, right, for articles. I mean, for example, I can write quite a lot about Islamic banking, but I don't want to be... I don't want you to be just a place for me to write articles. So we're having quite a large number of collaborators and people, normal average Muslims who are submitting articles to us. And so that, that's something we're growing with our blog. So at the moment, yes, uh, it's on getnia.com. So the emphasis being that we're, we're at the growth, the, the growth stage and the launch stage. So this is a way for customers to get a chance to get into NIA and, and, and be part of the initial testing phase. Fantastic. Well, that sounds really good. And, uh, you know, I look forward. I think I'm signed up as one of the people who are um, in eager anticipation of the launch. So, uh, inshallah, I hope to see, um, you know, when it is launched and, you know, get my hands into uh, what you guys have come up with, because it looks really exciting. I think there is there is definitely a real need for it, um, inshallah. Um, So before before we wrap up, I I just wanted to kind of get, you know, your final thoughts on where you think that we as a Muslim community, um, it doesn't necessarily even have to be the Islamic finance community, but we as a Muslim community in the UK will be in five, ten years time if things, um, you know, go to plan with, uh, you know, what, you know, what, what you're trying to work at. Okay, so that's a very good question. I, I think the, the first thing I, I would I would like to see in development is that um, that we have some more unity, especially in, in, in our banking and finance and in our daily lives. So that, that, that's one thing we don't have. So what I mean by that is, so for example, uh, I mean, we all know that riba is forbidden, but I think, I think many Muslims in the UK have quite a lackadaisical approach to that. Um, I, I don't yeah. think we understand it very well. And I think we, many of us take the view that well, riba is forbidden, but you know, we live in a non-Muslim country, so you know, we're not, I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it. So... I think hopefully we can be more aware of our responsibilities and 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 also be more 
be further along the line of having some solutions. So whether it's Nia Bank and there are some other startups and launches and maybe the existing Islamic banks can improve what they do. So hopefully in five or ten years, the, 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 the Muslims here are more cohesive, more unified, and they're served better by the, the, by the banking community. And also, I think in the UK, um, I think we have an infrastructure here on the commercial side, on the tech side, fintech side, and on the business side, I think we have the infrastructure to do very interesting things. So, for example, um, Wahed Invest, which is, uh, you know, it, it, it's a fintech firm that's doing fantastic things. So re- last week they had a launch in Malaysia. Um, and one thing that interest, that really surprised me what I, when I read was that they now it appears that, that the, they're the first Sharia compliant robo advisory firm in Malaysia, which is quite astonishing. Because Malaysia is a yeah, very established yeah, yeah. market and they have very deep markets and they are, you know, quite fintech and forward thinking. But it shows me that there are, they are markets that actually can move quicker than other parts of the world. And I think the UK is actually mm. one of them. So I think the product development and the proof that we can do in the UK can actually set a barometer and be exported to other parts of the Islamic markets, which it, it sounds a bit odd because part they are you know, in the Middle East and in, in Southeast Asia, those Islamic markets are much more established than the UK. But I think we have everything in place to actually to lead many things in the UK that, that can show many parts of the Islamic banking world how things can move forward. Absolutely. No, Jazakallah, um, it's been a pleasure um, having you on. Um, and inshallah, um, you know, I look forward to having, having you on at some later date as well. Um, Jazakallah khair for all the listeners um, for tuning in. Do check out Nia and um, also do subscribe to this podcast um, if you've liked it and do share um, if you think that there's people in your network who will be benefiting um, from what we've discussed today as well. Um, Jazakallah khair finally once again to Safdar. Um, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you very much brother. It's been a pleasure to be on.